Good morning. Guess we're in business back there. First off, I want to say again this morning, I am really, and you're going to get sick of hearing this, but that's okay because I'm going to keep saying it. Uh, I'm blown away by the preparation, the presentation of the of the the room here, all of the activities, the extent that has been gone to in order to make this marriage retreat a success. Uh, amazing work, all of you that have contributed to that. Okay, it is a marriage retreat. Gentlemen, how many of you held your wife's hand on the way to the car this morning? Raise your hand. Three. <laughs> and three, huh? My wife didn't come to the car with me. She said, Well, then you have an excuse then, Kirk. That's all right. It's kind of hard to hold somebody's hand if they're not there. How many of you held the door for your wife to get into the car this morning? Oh, a few more of those. All right, that's cool. That's good. That's good. Um, yeah, there's an undercurrent. Okay, let's move right into it, shall we? Just curious. Go ahead and take out your Bibles if you have them with you this morning and turn to our text of Ephesians chapter 6. I want to begin by reading the text that is under discussion in this morning's session. Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That is a key verse to this morning's lesson. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. The first thing that I want for us to consider this morning... Not the ball games that are later on today or any of that. The first thing that I want us to understand this morning, vital, crucial, critical to our marriages, is something I'm not sure we ever sell, that we ever consider quite to the extent we'd ought to, and that is this. Just how entirely consumed Satan is with destroying your marriage. Think about that. Think about how deadly and devastating the resources are that he has at his disposal to totally destroy your marriage. That's what he is after every day. In fact, look at what led up to this first word in our text. The first word in our text, in the New King James Version at any rate, is finally. Think about what led up to Paul writing finally here in chapter 6 and verse 10. What led up to that? Well... In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul has talked about the relationship between God and man and how Christ came to this earth to establish his church. That's Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 through to chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul's talked about relationships within the church. In Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, he transitions to the marital relationship between a husband and wife. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, 
talks about the relationship of parents to their children. And then in verses 5 through 9, the relationship between masters and servants. What I want for us to understand is that all of those relationships that we've just talked about for a moment in Ephesians, Satan is out to destroy every one of those. It's what he lives for. If he is not out to destroy those relationships between us and Christ, us and one another, and us and our spouses, then he has no purpose. Satan's purpose is to destroy. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's a murderer. Jesus told us that. And he wants your marriage. And he's going to stop at nothing to get it. And I don't think we pay enough attention to that. He is out to annihilate every good relationship God ever created. And what I want you to stop and think about is, in that light, the very first institution that our Creator gave us, or established after creating the universe for the benefit of human creation, was what? Marriage. Marriage. The very first one. <clears throat> then later on, in the New Testament, and certainly spoken of throughout the Old Testament, but later on in the New Testament, God uses that illustration of that first institution he ever created to show us the church and the relationship between the church, between Christ and his bride, the church. But if you read again in Ephesians chapter 5, he uses the first institution, marriage, as kind of an illustration to us of how this institution called the church should work. So, as the first institution the Lord ever created for, for humanity, as it were, to benefit from, that pure and righteous and holy institution of marriage. It also has the distinction of being the first institution that Satan went after. The first institution that Satan made his top priority of totally ripping apart, tearing down, annihilating, and destroying. And Satan has not changed. You know... Occasionally, we may be asked the question by those that don't know God, if God is so good, how come there's evil in the world? You ever been asked that? I need to stand still. Which is going to be difficult. Okay, I'll stay here. Is that better? All right. If God is so good, how come there's sin in the world? Some of us have been asked that. And my response is always along the lines of, well, where was God in the garden? When Satan was tempting Eve, I'll tell you where God was. God was standing back. God could have stopped all the evil right then. But God needed to give us a choice. If we have the opportunity to choose to love him, we must have the opportunity to choose to reject God. So God was giving mankind a choice. So God allowed Satan to tempt Eve, allowed Eve to make a choice. Well, maybe the better question for this retreat is, where was Adam when Satan was tempting Eve. Now, I don't know where he was. But there is something I do see in that temptation of her alone that is relevant for us in this retreat. Satan, one of his greatest strategies for destroying your marriage, your marriage, not the guy beside you, not the person three tables, yours, is divide and conquer. Think about that. Divide and conquer. Eve was alone when she was tempted. Satan knows scripture. We know that from Matthew 4, right? Satan knows scripture. And I know it wasn't all written then. But Satan knows that a house divided cannot stand. Matthew 12 and verse 25. Satan knows 
that a three-fold three cord is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 12. Marriage is a three-fold cord. It's God and you and your spouse. It's a covenant relationship, not between two, but between three. God and you and your spouse. And Satan knows the threefold cord is not quickly broken. He also knows that if he can get us to bite and devour one another as husbands and wives, we're done. It will eventually destroy us. Galatians 5 and verse 15. And so one of Satan's greatest strategies to destroy your marriage is divide and conquer. That is the crux of this morning's lesson. Catch them alone. Convince them to sin. Get them to turn on one another instead of defending one another. It's one of his greatest strategies. Get them to turn on one another instead of defending one another. Not that I'm recommending the movie because I'm not, but most of you have probably seen the movie 300. And the whole, how many have? Or am I just talking to myself? Okay. In that movie, the whole key to success was, that, that little group, the whole key to success was the way they used their shields to defend one another. That was the whole key to, to their victory. It's sort of like that in marriage. Have you noticed in the full armor of God that every one of those pieces of armor goes on the front? Have you noticed that the back is totally unprotected? There is not one single piece of that armor that protects the back. You know why? Because we're to stand back to back and cover one another's back in the church, which is more specifically perhaps what that's talking about. But in all of those relationships, we're to stand back to back. If you have two people that are standing back to back, neither one of them can be attacked from behind. And that's what marriage is supposed to be. We stand back to back. We cover one another's back. Instead, Satan seeks to divide us because we're an easier target. He seeks to divide and conquer. Get us to point fingers of blame at our partner, the partner God gave us, instead of us working together to defend one another. You know why we need to defend one another? Because we're not the enemy. Satan is. That's something that we often forget that we'll get to in just a minute as well. But think about it. What does that very text say? It says there in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age. Our battle is not against our spouse. Sometimes we make it that way, but that's not the way God intended it. But in the garden, think of what Satan did. He divided and conquered. What do we see Adam saying right after that? When he's confronted for his sin, what do we see Adam say? It's the woman you gave me. Aha, Satan's been successful. Divide, catch her alone, get her to sin, get her husband. That way she gets her husband to sin. That way when God confronts them, he's, uh, Adam's blaming Eve. Eve is blaming the serpent. Everybody's blaming everybody else. Divide, conquer, back not covered, you're out of paradise. Now Satan is evil, but he's not stupid. That works. You know what? Works just well days it did that day. That is the strategy. So, what I want you to think about is this. You ever had a fight with your, don't raise your hands. <laughs> ever had words of less than love with your spouse? Ever had a, an intense discussion? Ever had a fight? 
And maybe you go to work the next day, or you're amongst your friends, or you're talking to somebody on your phone, and you, they say, you know, you're really down today. Why are you so down? You say, well, you know, my spouse and I had a fight last night. Or I had a fight with my spouse last night. We need to stop doing that for many reasons. But if we understand this text correctly in verse 12, you know what we need to say instead? God and my spouse and I were busy fighting the devil last night. We don't say that, do we? We need to. God and my spouse and I were busy trying to beat the devil out of our marriage last night. Because our battle is not against one another. Verse 12, Ephesians 6. Usually when we fight, it is because Satan is back there somewhere and he is dividing and conquering and he's gotten one of us to do something we shouldn't have done, to say something we shouldn't have said that has angered and hurt the other one. That's usually the way it works. And even though Satan is using that person to work through, he is ultimately the enemy behind it all. And so our battle is not against each other. And boy, how much fire would it take out of some of the fights we sometimes have if we understood, hey, person's not the problem Satan is. We need to fight Satan together. You know what? You stand back to back. He cannot beat that. Think about it. The next thing I want to take a look at is once that he got to Eve, while she was divided or separated from her back-protecting partner, Adam, how did he conquer her? I'll tell you how he conquered her. He won by approaching her stealthily and appealing to her personal pride. Appealing to her personal pride and desire for that which God said, no, don't go there. That's how he got to her. It's the same way he does it today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take a look in 1 John 2 with me, would you please? 1 John chapter 2. It's the same thing today. Hey, if you find something that works, keep using it. And Satan knows this works. Appeal to people's pride and desire for that which they're not supposed to have, according to God. It worked in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. John tells us the New Testament, basically it works the same way today. He says in John, 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here comes the three, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. I want us to think about those three elements. The lust of the flesh. You know what that means? Me first. I am going to do anything I want or whatever it is I want in order to make me feel better. In order to make me feel more fulfillment or more pleasure than I currently do. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians 5, if you would please. Galatians 5, this idea of I'm going to do whatever I want, the lust of the flesh, to make me feel more fulfillment than I now do. In Galatians 5, in verse 14, an explanation of that, Paul writes to the church of Christ in first century, the churches of Christ in first century Galatia. He says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill, here comes our phrase, the lust of the flesh. And again, I know this isn't written specifically to husbands and wives, but boy does it apply. It's another relationship uh, benefit that God has given us. 
He goes on in verse 19, tells us what the works of the flesh are. And all down through that list in 19, 20, and 21, all of those things, if you stop and think about them, are things that are lust of the flesh. They are things that, you know, I want to feel more fulfilled, or I, it's all for me, or it's all about me, and it puts me first. Every one of those things. Number two, second way that he got Eve, and he will come after us as he seeks to divide and conquer us, is the lust of the eyes. We are visually oriented beings. It's who we are. We are visually oriented. You know, Satan knows that all too well because he said to the woman, hey, look at this. And in Genesis 3, 6, it says, so when the woman saw, turned her head and looked at it, got a visual, that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. Wow, that's really pretty. That's really, wow, I need that. And a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. I love this. I love this. You, know, you may forget a lot of the scripture references in this marriage seminar. You may forget a lot of the things that are said, especially by the time we get to the fifth or sixth lesson. I may forget quite a few of them myself. But I won't forget this. This was a cool visual. Just like the apple. Won't you hold on to those things? You can say, wow, that's right. I remember that. We are visually oriented people. Satan knows we are visually oriented people. The letterhead, all of the neat little things you see around with the full armor of God on them, those are things that we're going to remember. The activity that we're going to do later, we're visually oriented people. And one of Satan's greatest weapons, which he will level at your marriage and your marriage partner at every opportunity he gets, is the lust of the eyes. He is so successful with that, why would he stop? talked last night about the lust of the eyes, as it were. We talked about it in a little different context, but when we talked about a new car salesman, what are they trying to get you to do? To get into that car and see all these beautiful gadgets and all these things you know you can't afford, the lust of the eyes. Boy, this is just so beautiful. Got to have this, even though you know you can't afford it. That's lust of the eyes. And if you don't believe this next one, just look around. One of the biggest ones is sexual temptation. It's everywhere. Sex sells. Look at the commercials. Look at the ads. Better yet, don't. <laughs> Look at the book racks when you leave Walmart or wherever you get groceries. What's plastered all over the front of those? Half-dressed people. Okay? You know, we live in a society where it is so offensive to have a manger in the mall at Christmas. We don't have manger scenes in the mall, but we still have Victoria's Secret that we have to walk by every time we're in the mall. Right? That's what we've come to. Sex sells. The lust of the eyes, visual orientation, and Satan knows it. And it's so easy today with smartphones, porn on the internet. It's just all of these sorts of things. Now, the third one we'll move to is the pride of life. You know what the pride of life is? I deserve better. Isn't that what Satan said to Eve? In the day you eat of it, God knows you will be like him, knowing good and evil. What did he do? He appealed to her sense of pride. You can be more. You can do better. 
You can have more. You deserve more. How many commercials, how many ad campaigns are, you know, you deserve a break today. You need this product because you deserve it. I love the car commercial that comes on. I don't, I'm being sarcastic. In case you didn't know, that's sarcasm, okay? <clears throat> car commercial that comes on and this lady comes on and she says you pay your car insurance bills every month and yada and I'm thinking how do you know what I do and it's this whole idea of of you deserve you know better than you're getting with your current company well maybe maybe I've never you know paid my bills on time maybe I don't deserve better but every ad campaign or so many it seems like you deserve better you deserve more and Satan uses this whole you deserve more and this this pride of life and the best you can get because after all you're worth it he said to Eve it'll make you like God all about you the sin of pride if he can get us alone Try to divide us down by saying, you know what? You could have a whole lot more if you just do it my way. That's what Satan does. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a destroyer. He's not being honest with you. But boy, he lies to you all the time with that. And he's convincing. If he wasn't convincing, there wouldn't be so much sin in the world. David Penley, in his Simply One in Marriage Couples Bible Study book, says this. Pride makes us unwilling to admit our fault in the problem. Therefore, we do not ask forgiveness and cannot resolve the issue. Pride leads us to demand that things be done our way rather than discussing them with our spouse, much less conceding his or her way may be better. Pride leads us to say and to do things that make us feel better, even at the cost of hurting our wife or our husband. Pride, the pride of life. You know what the book of Proverbs says about pride? Nothing good. A couple of quick references, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's true in our marriage. If there's too much pride in either partner and they're going to have their way no matter what, guess what? There's destruction and a fall coming in that marriage unless something changes. Proverbs 13.10, by pride comes nothing but strife. Nothing but strife, God says, with pride. But with the well-advised is wisdom. <coughs> the pride of life is the exact opposite of the humility that God tells us we must have in order to be successful, God-fearing, Christ-like, self-sacrificing people. And a marriage that is all it can be. I had this couple once that I did marriage counseling with for a number of years and they'd always come in and they would talk about how the other one had done this to him and that to him and something else to him and it was always this, well he said, she said, and they did, and they did. So they come in one day and said, <clears throat> so we're going to do this a little different today because all they're doing is just sitting there just hammering each other. So we're going to do this different today. They'd had a rough week and I said, here's how we're going to start. I said, I want each of you to tell me the problems you've caused in your marriage this week and what you intend to do to fix it. It was the quietest, quietest study session we'd ever had. We need to think in our marriages rather than, well, what part of the problem am I responsible for and what am I going to do to fix it? That's the absence of pride. I've got a marriage counseling series of lessons at home called The Trouble With Us Is Me. It's really good because it focuses on that. Now, 
Let's just paint a little scenario of how this pride of life thing works. One spouse goes to work in the morning. They've had a rough evening with their, with their spouse. Maybe they've had words. But they're just feeling as though their spouse is uncaring or out of touch or whatever it is. And so they go to work. They begin talking quietly to their co-workers about their spouse and how, how their spouse just isn't what they ought to be and how they themselves deserve better or this or that. And, and there's, that, there's that one member of the opposite sex co-worker that's kind of been looking for an opening. And so when the spouse goes to work and they begin complaining about their spouse, this co-worker of the opposite sex sees and seizes that opportunity to get in where that little door has been opened a little bit, and guess what happens? Down goes the marriage. I want us to think about that for a minute. Last night we talked about Matthew seven twelve, what we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. One of the worst things we can do in our marriage, ever, ever, is to go spreading our spouse's dirty laundry for other people to see. Talking about them in a negative way behind their back. Do any of you want that done to you? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a beautiful rule to live by. If I don't want my dirty laundry spread all over town by my spouse, then I need to not spread theirs. That goes along with Matthew 18 and verse 15, which as most of you know, says, you know, if your brother sins against you, go to him privately, just the two of you. If your spouse sins against you, go to them privately. Deal with it privately between the two of you. Both James and Peter in their epistles reference Proverbs 10 and verse 12, which says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. If we're standing back to back, we are going to cover our spouse's back. We're going to, we got their back. We're going to cover their back. We're going to cover their weak spots. We're going to cover their dirty laundry. We're going to stand back to back and protect and defend them. Love covers all sins, Proverbs 10 and verse 12. Back to back, not leaving a knife in their back, sticking a knife in their back, or leaving them unprotected. Proverbs 31, verses 11 and 12, Romans 1, 29 and 30. Did you know in Romans 1, 29 and 30, the sins of gossip and slander, or whispering and backbiting, whichever way your translation is worded, are only separated from being a hater of God by a comma. Pretty big sin to be a hater of God, isn't it? Whisperers, backbiters, comma, haters of God. They're all in the same sentence and they're all just as evil and ugly to God. We need to consider that. Finally, if we think about Ephesians 6 and verse 13, Ephesians 6 and verse 13 does not indicate if the evil day comes, but when the evil day comes, as it inevitably will. You know, it's my turn to pick on Katie and JR just a little. <laughs> Better yet to hold them up as a good example, I think. They're just starting out. They haven't been married all that long. It's not even a month yet. 
Just almost, right? Yeah, 14th, yeah. Getting close. You know, life's wonderful, life's beautiful, everything's great, but I make you a promise. The evil day will come. The day will come when Satan comes after you both so hard. The evil day will come. You need to be prepared now while everything is wonderful because it's coming. It doesn't say if the evil day comes. It says when it comes. Satan, the fact is, if you've been married for a week or you've been married for 55 years almost, the fact of the matter is that Satan is not going to leave your marriage alone. If you leave this retreat and you think, well, we've been married 40 years or 30 years or 20 years or 100 years and whatever, you know, we got it made. We're immune. You're not immune. Satan still wants your marriage to fail as much as he did the day you said, I do. Time may have gone by, but his intentions are exactly the same. The Bible tells us that the word does not change. Psalm 119 verse 89. It tells us that God does not change. Malachi 3 and verse 16. It tells us that Christ does not change. Hebrews 13 and verse 8. It also indicates if we look back at the garden and what Satan did then all the way up to the same way he's working on couples today. Satan hadn't changed a whole lot either. He's found something successful and it works and he wants your marriage and he's coming for it. Period. If there's anybody in this room that does not believe that, I beg you to read your Bible. He's coming for you. Some of you know already the scars that he's already left. He's going to come after you and your marriage with every unbelievably wicked, incredibly evil, twisted, and time-tested weapon and temptation in his entire arsenal. You can count on it. You know, we can be, we can hide our head in the sand, we can be like the little child that goes at three years old that puts her hands over their eyes and say, Aha! You can't see me! Well, yeah, of course you can. But that child, with their eyes closed, just doesn't understand that you can because they can't see you. We, we can do that in our marriage. Say, well, Satan isn't going to come after my marriage. Oh, yes, he is. And standing there claiming that he can't see you with your eyes covered is not going to change the fact he's coming at you with everything he's got. So, how do we stand... And stand together and overcome these three primary areas in which Satan seeks to divide and conquer. Here's how we do it. The same exact way that Jesus did it. With the full armor of God on. Jesus in Matthew 4, I'm not going to turn there, but if you're taking notes, Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the three accounts of the temptations that Jesus faced at the conclusion of the 40 days of fasting... He overcame the exact three temptations that had been leveled at Eve. Look at Eve's three temptations. Look at the three temptations that Jesus endured. But Jesus won. Jesus did not fail. He conquered. He won. And the beauty for us is he left behind that same victorious full armor of God for us to fight and win our battles with too. He left it behind. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. He left that armor here. He left the sword of the Spirit. He showed us what that breastplate of love looks like. He showed us what faith looks like. He left it here, and it's all right here in, in our Bibles. And so, Satan's ability to divide and conquer your marriage, yours, yours and mine, 
his ability to do that and how much effectiveness he has at destroying our marriages is totally up to us. It's totally up to us and whether or not we're willing to do what we need to to put on the full armor of God. It has to do with our compliance with God's loving commandment to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand. And having done all things in that evil day to withstand Him.